Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Coming up on today's show, a resounding victory for Pierre Polyev as leader of the CPC. We'll get a breakdown. Everybody's talking about quiet quitting, though. It's the new term we're hearing a lot about. We'll find out exactly what it is and whether or not it's something you should look into. Saskatchewan stabbing suspect, of course, passed away after he was arrested. What goes into a manhunt? And some big gains being made by Ukraine in Russia. So Pierre Polyev winning close to 70% of uh, the support of conservative voters in the leadership campaign. Uh, I don't know if we expected that margin of victory, but we certainly anticipated that this morning we would be talking about Pierre Polyev as new leader of the Conservative Party, and here we are. So let's get some insight on uh, what strategists are thinking. We're going to chat with Melissa Cowett now, who is the Western Canada Public Policy Professional and Principal of MC Consulting. Melissa, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate your time, as always. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, no surprise, right? We, we knew Polyev was going to win this. We've known that for quite a while. Yeah, I don't think that there's anybody who was watching this race seriously following his rallies, his membership sales, his fundraising and his campaigning in general that thought that there would be a different outcome than tonight. Yeah. I think what a lot of people are surprised by, as you mentioned, is that margin, um, huge margins. He won um, the way that the voting happened in the Conservative Party of Canada is it's um, you know, it's every one of the 338 ridings. He won 330 of them and every single one outside of Quebec and Ontario. And even then, he only lost a total of eight in those two provinces. So the margins and, and the degree to which he took this home, um, I think, is surprising, even to the people who were absolutely certain he was going to win. So, Melissa, when we talk about the, the reason this whole campaign started, really, is around unity within the Conservative Party and coming up with a unified voice, a unified leader, and a unified membership when all is said and done. It sounds like that may have been accomplished when you're talking about a margin of victory like that and winning, essentially, every single riding across the country. Yes. Um, as far as unity within the Conservative Party of Canada, while there are people who um, may not be happy with the outcome, it's clear that Pierre has indicated that within the CPC. And from his speech on Saturday night, it's also clear that he um, has pivoted. Now, is that pivot going to be enough for voters outside of the Conservative Party of Canada? As we'll remember, this is just a very mm-hmm. small portion of voters and small C Conservative voters across Canada. I, I think that's yet to be determined, but absolutely he has, um, he has a mandate from CPC members, um, to lead and his next task is going to be to seek that same mandate from small C conservative voters across the country. That's going to be a harder task for him. Well, that's the question, Melissa. Like I said, you know, the latest polling out just last week showed that, um, he had uh, only a 23% favorability of, um, rating across the country by voters outside of the Conservative Party, or all voters, uh, actually. Um, you know, and so he, it's a bit of a different situation. So what's the strategy if you're Pierre Polyev? You can't pivot, you can't suddenly become a new candidate, because that's going to get you into the same position Aaron O'Toole found himself in. 
can't he can't pivot on his policies, and I don't think that he has pivoted on policy. Um, as you see, as you would have heard from Saturday night's speech, he wasn't saying anything different than he's been saying, but the way he was saying it was different. And I think for a lot of people, um, the the biggest struggle that they had with Pierre. Um, outside of some of the more contentious actions he took with um, with the convoy situation um, and some of the um, World Economic Forum conspiracies and some of the Bank of Canada comments. Outside of that, a lot of people, I think, have a problem with not what he does, but how he does it. And so if he can pivot in that respect, there I think there is room to gain back some of the people who aren't totally turned off of him. So, I mean, if if I were um, if I were to guess, you're going to see him you're going to see him take a unified tone amongst conservatives, and he's going to talk only about things that Canadians care about. And so he's going to sort of he'll be talking about housing, he'll be talking about affordability. You see him this morning after mm-hmm. um, after the caucus meeting um, saying. To, to the to the prime minister, if you really cared, you would do something about these issues. And so I think he'll 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 be appealing more to to issues that people are dealing with in their everyday lives and trying to find common ground with those folks and hope that when the next federal election comes around, that the liberals have not done anything to give people who previously supported them hope that they're going to be any different and maybe they'll be open minded to trying something like Polyev. Polyev, uh, as far as you know, his role as an opposition critic, I don't think there's been anybody in the Conservative Party that has been as effective as he has been, certainly on the floor of the House of Commons. I mean, he's he's an absolute soundbite machine. He's, you know, they call him the pit bull, whatever the case may be. So I think when you're going into the next election, that's, it's an entirely different situation for the Liberals, and especially Justin Trudeau. Andrew Scheer or Aaron O'Toole, well, I'm sure they're very nice men and very smart and very capable politicians. They could not do what Pierre Polyev does around a microphone in front of a camera and on the campaign trail. It's going to be a very, very different campaign whenever we get around to it. Absolutely. And I think this this comes down to the question that I myself have been thinking a lot about over the past seven months. Um, what is politically expedient versus what is um, what is um, sort of in our idealistic world right, sure. um, something we would hope politicians do? And Pierre, one hundred percent, has all of those things that you've mentioned. I would add he's also an extremely hard worker, um, so he puts in the time and and is willing to do the things that are required to win. Now, I think what upsets some Canadians is that those metrics, what's required to win in the context of what's happened in the last few elections is a little bit different than what I think people would like to see in the ideal of politics. But he, I mean, in many ways, um, in many ways, Justin Trudeau has met his match because Pierre Polyev is to people on the right that that Justin Trudeau Trudeau is for people on the left. And Pierre has the benefit of not having, um, you know, a record in government um, over the last seven years to challenge. He can stand there and say all of these things because he has not actually been sitting in those in those decision making tables making those those things. So he's, I think, advantaged um, against Trudeau uh, in that way.
Yeah, it's going to be very, it's going to be very, very different and very, very interesting. Um, what about the rest? I mean, Jean Charest, Leslin Lewis, what happens with them? And do we care at this point? It's Polyev's party. There's no doubt about it. Does he need to, uh, he, he, he extended the olive branch and thanked Jean Charest for fighting and defending the country during the referendum. So, um, but at this point, are, are we all falling in behind Polyev? And, and if the rest don't want to, then go away and go find somewhere else to play? I actually don't think so. I think, you know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of talk this weekend of, um, of Polyev actually wanting, uh, Chare to, to run. He, he, he said a lot of really nice things about each of the other candidates, including Chare and in his speech. Chare has said he won't, he'll be helping the party, but going back to the private sector. But Pierre needs all of these other candidates in the race. He needs people that represent a different part of the party than he. This is a huge country. It's a divided country. If your only focus is to have people that are just like you around you, it's very difficult to win. So I I think he's doing the right thing. Um, And this is what I mean by pivot is he's realizing that he needs to have these people around him and to listen to them and to have them be a real part of the movement because the conservatives have work to do in rebuilding that. So I, I think you'll see most people stick around with the exception of Sharae, who knows what, what kind of a role that he'll have. I'm sure this loss was, um, while not unexpected, disappointing to him. Um, but no, I don't think it's just going to be the, the Polyev show. And I think if it is, then he's going to be in real trouble for the next general. Interesting. Okay. All right. Melissa, as always, great insight. Thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Um, yeah, every day this week, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about um, the workaday world such as it is in September of 2022. And we know that can mean different things to different people, so we'll cover some different topics. Um, but overarching, I think it's for a lot of people, it's a return to work or the normal workplace. For some, uh, you know, it's it's the restart. Uh, we've got a real labor shortage in some sectors. Uh, we've got employees that are in a position to sort of demand different things from prospective employers, um, different work relationships and arrangements where some people are working from home and working from home part time and all kinds of things. Big, big changes regardless. One thing we've been hearing a lot about recently, it's a big, big deal. Uh, on social media is something called quiet quitting. And this is where it all started. This is the TikTok video that started the quiet quitting revolution. You're not outright quitting your job, but you're quitting the idea of going above and beyond. You're still performing your duties, but you're no longer subscribing to the hustle culture mentality that work has to be your life. So that's essentially what quiet quitting is. Obviously, there's a lot more to it, but... um it's essentially saying, okay, I'm going to do what you pay me to do, and I'm not going to get into the above and beyond. I'm not going to do that anymore. Uh, we'll see if that's a good idea and maybe why some people are going to do it. We're going to chat with Dr. Maria Kordowitz, who's an associate professor in organizational behavior at the University of Nottingham. Dr. Kordowitz, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much for having me, Shay. Glad to be here. So when we talk about quiet quitting, I mean, in a nutshell, basically, it means not going above and beyond, doing exactly what you're paid for. But can you give us a bit of a better definition? What does that mean? What does that look like? If you're an employer who's quiet quitting, how do you approach the day? Yeah, good question. And I think we have to remember that our ability to engage with our work fluctuates throughout the day. So I think all of us, to some extent, have quietly quit in our working lives, whether that lasted or not is another question. But in essence, it's doing the minimum required to get by in your job without letting it seep into other areas of your life. 
So it might be that you want to find a better work-life balance and you don't, as you say, go above and beyond in the workplace. So you may not be working outside of your allocated work times. It might be that you are working to contractual demands only and you're no longer putting that relentless productivity that's talked about on TikTok, you know, that hustle culture yeah. above your well-being. So, so we could argue that it's a bit of a coping strategy, and I say that because I'm a psychologist by background. So doing only what your job description requires, and you protect yourself from overwork and potentially burnout too. So is there one reason? Like, is it uh, uh, restoring work-life balance? Is it protecting yourself? Is it freeing up time? I mean, I guess all those things sort of work hand in hand, right? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I think it's multifactorial. I think there's something about the period we are in, you know, as you described at the beginning, the world of work is changing yeah. and our relationship with work is also. So I guess the question here is, is it a good idea? I mean, is this a, a smart strategy for somebody who is employed and wants to remain employed? It can be. I think in the sense of, well, look, there are boundaries that we put into place. We want to nurture a better work-life delineation. And for a lot of us, lockdowns meant that that yeah. work-life balance, the delineation really got blurred. And I think People are coming out of that really quite fatigued and exhausted. And it might be that they just cannot give as much as they could, be it for a period of time or longer term. I think people are also thinking about, well, what's meaningful to me at work? And how may I go about seeking it? And no longer is that, you know, staying till kind of 9 p.m. in the evening. It's perhaps connecting with other areas of me. So nurturing my family relationships, for instance, reconnecting with nature, with reading, you know, whatever you're into, but creating the time for that. But I think, you know, there is a bit of a line as well where there may be some negative effects of quiet quitting. So if our disengagement goes too far, our work is no longer enjoyable. It can undermine our kind of sense of professional identity longer term. And then if we work part of a team, it's important to be mindful of the impact of us withdrawing our efforts yeah. on others, uh, because then colleagues may ha well have to take on more work, risking burnout themselves. I've also seen talk of quiet quitting maybe seen as something that could undermine chances of promotion. Sure. But I think if promotion is based on people overworking, then 
really the organization needs to question their <laughs> promotion criteria. So I think for me, the concept is most helpfully defined as working within the remit of one's role. I think you hit on something really important, though. You need to know the atmosphere that you're in. And um, like you say, you're going to have some organizations, some managers, some bosses who will handle that much differently, whereas it could be a real black mark for some and others might say, you know what, okay, you're making a good point. Let's see if we can accommodate that. You need to have some understanding of the situation you're in, right? Yeah, very, very true. And for me, and I've been saying this a bit on the circuit, there's a danger that this becomes a way of individualizing the problem. And what I mean by that, we really focus on individual workers. So I've seen workers as being labeled as lazy or snowflakes because of what we've been calling the quiet quitting trend. And, and I've observed this in the media and really what quiet quitting ought to be a springboard for is seeking organizational solutions. So employers, supervisors, bosses, reflecting on, well, what can we do to make things better, not only for our workforce, but also for ourselves, because of course, bosses are workers too. They too may feel like quietly quitting. They too may well do so. So things like appropriate workload, thinking about our work-based policies, all of those I would hope would be really advantageous results to come out of this discussion that we're all having. So ultimately, if you find yourself in a position where you feel like, you know what, maybe I do want to take a step back, I want to re-examine my work-life balance, is your best approach quiet quitting and just saying, okay, I'm going to do this? Or would it be perhaps more productive to have a conversation with your employer and see if you can't come to an agreement somehow? Yeah, it's an interesting one. And, you know, to what extent do people have those kinds of relationships with their employer? That could be a tricky one. You know, some of us yeah. may work for quite faceless organizations where actually there isn't the trust or that I talk about psychological safety, you know, the extent to which we can take risks in drawing boundaries in saying where we stand. That's not afforded to all of us. So for some quitting quietly, you know, doing the bare minimum, still meeting your contractual requirements, but switching off from that particular role, maybe, maybe seeking slowly a role elsewhere, which will yeah. feel more meaningful to you, could be the only solution for many. Dr. Kordowitz, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time today. We saw... Um, 11 people killed and 19 injured in a massacre on the James Smith Cree Nation. Um, the suspect, Miles Sanderson, as you know, um, was taken into custody late last week and, um, and passed away shortly after he was taken into custody. Now that investigation is underway as to what happened and how he, he uh, came to die. Meanwhile, just because he's been taken off the streets doesn't mean that the investigation into the crime itself happened. For example, on Friday, and um, you probably didn't even hear about this, the vehicle that RCMP originally had said the two brothers were in, uh, a Nissan Rogue, was found um, near Crystal Springs, Saskatchewan, on Friday afternoon. Apparently it had been driven off uh, a side road and parked behind some trees and had been sitting there for a while. So, um, you know, the investigation continues, and it likely will for a very, very long time. Still so many unanswered questions, and Sanderson being dead makes it much more difficult to get some of the answers, but 
you know, police will continue their investigation to try and answer as many as they possibly can to, to talk a bit about how a police investigation like this unfolds from beginning to where we are now and where it may end up. We have Kevin Bryan with us, a professor of School of Public Safety at Seneca College and a retired police detective. Uh, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate your time. You're welcome, Shay. Anytime. So let's just start at the beginning here. When you had the original incident that Sunday morning on the day of the massacre, you've got the crime scene in northern Saskatchewan. You've got the reported sightings in Regina. I mean, we're hundreds of kilometers apart already here. So if you're police trying to get a handle on what's happening and where the suspects might be, how does that play out? you got dozens of people dead or injured, suspects on the run. What's step one? How do you start trying to bring this into control? Well, I think they learned a lot from the, uh, the the mass killing out in Nova Scotia. I yeah. think the RCMP did learn a lot there with regards to notification of the public, and there was a, they did a lot better job of that uh, in, in getting the notification out. Sure did. Uh, problems come when you get sightings of a vehicle. Eyewitness evidence can be you know pretty unreliable. So if you got somebody in Saskatchewan saying they saw the Nissan Rogue, you know, with, with, without any cameras without any uh you know confirmed sighting where some people actually somebody actually knows yeah. miles and his brother you know and then they said there was two people in it and so and meanwhile the brother was probably dead all the time because his body was found damien's body was found near the one of the one of the uh scenes yeah so you know very very um turns out that was probably an unreliable tip but you know you still have up every tip and to let the public know this is a possibility that this is where we uh you know this this is where the the brothers may be located so difficult on the police uh, trying to kind of determine what is actually good information and are we are we chasing red herrings here well that's um, the thing because i mean they had the reported sighting in regina they told us about and then a couple of days later they told us that he had been spotted back on james smith Cree nation and i'm sure like you say there were hundreds of tips, not just those two, but uh, exactly. those ones seem to have some level that were at least they said, okay, at least we need to let people know about this. Yeah, those two tips that le- led to kind of alerts to the public, so to speak. Uh, and there were probably hundreds of other ones that they kind of uh, screened and, and, and determined there wasn't enough information there. You know, I, I actually was, uh, I think I was on television or on radio at the time, and I was I actually thought the one with regards to being back at Cree Nation, the, the, the one that would have been a much more reliable tip because they were well known in that. Community. Right. They know him. So I, I would have thought, oh, there's something to this one. But then a short time later, it was no, they're not on the on the on the uh, at the nation and in the community. And so that was that one was eliminated pretty quickly. At least they at least they got that news out there pretty quick. So that was good. Um, now, what's going on in the meantime? Are, are they bringing in resources from around the country? How are they trying to organize? Okay, Saskatchewan's a big place with a lot of empty space in between these two areas. How do you go about trying to coordinate a manhunt when you really don't know where you're starting? Yeah, I, and Western Canada had a similar one a couple of years sure ago did, there yeah. with regards to the you know the the two uh, British Columbia boys who were running around. Um, so very, very, very difficult. Uh, now that both both uh, accused or both suspects are deceased, things have slowed right down. Yeah. Slow, will, will slow right down. There, the, you know, new, new cycles change as we saw very quickly last week, and, and the urgency to come up with answers um, is not as prevalent. Um, I mean, we we have the death of of Miles Sanderson that everybody's wondering about, 
and uh, how the heck did uh, somebody in custody wind up dying shortly after uh, apprehension, so to speak? Um, and and that will be very slow to come out. I, I I think they're saying that Saskatchewan is just starting up with their civilian oversight team. I mean, I don't know why they're so slow to the game. I know in Ontario has been going on for 25 years, and you know I don't heard. I think it was since 2014 they've had a a special investigation yeah. team. So. So I, they're, they're slow to the game, but anyway, with when you have the investigation of someone in custody, where, where there is civilian oversight uh, managing this, the, the case, it's a it's a very slow process, and information is released very slowly. It may, I mean, the autopsy has been done, the cause of death is known, um, but it may be a long time before it's released to us. Um, with the officers involved, I hope it's I hope it's quick. It, you know, if, if there's no misconduct on the officer's part, I hope it's quick that they they, they release this information. But uh, sometimes it takes days and weeks and months before it we. Uh, yeah, the, the investigations are done a little bit backwards when we have a uh, a police officer as well in Ontario, we call them subject officers. You know, there, there's no risk of, there's no major risk to the public that this officer is going to go out and harm somebody else. So the, the investigation is done a little bit backwards where you actually do the investigation and then determine if there's any actions to be taken against, uh, against an individual officer. You know, normally when we have somebody or an, you know, normally we'd make that arrest right away. We, we go out and you know, grab the guy who beat the person. We grab the guy who who shot the person, and and then we do the investigation afterwards. But uh, you know, it's different, and and uh, with policing and things take uh, a, a a lot of time before we're going to have those answers. So, I mean, is that okay? I know there's been a lot of canes I've seen, and this is primarily on social media, so take that. But a lot of people saying we need transparency. We need to know what happened. Yeah. I mean, do we need okay. it today? Or I mean, if transparency comes in six months, is that okay? Yeah, it's it's not as okay as it could be. We'd love to have the information, and I'm sure if the officers, I'm sure the officers would like it out there too. The, the information. If you, I don't know if you saw that or the the the, the um, I don't I don't think it was a, it was a cell phone video of the arrest. Somebody driving by. Yes, might that's have right. Yeah, taken a, Well, here you've got the you've got Miles Sanderson in a standing position, right against the cruiser, not being you know being patted down. His his head is he, he looks alert. His head is up and to the side. Yeah. It, it looks like a classic high risk arrest. It, 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 there's there's no signs of blood him, or injury punching, that you can see. Kicking. Yeah, there's nobody lying on top of him who could possibly suffocate him. They're, they're like it, it looks like a, a, a just a normal arrest, and and, a, and and you've got one officer. He's handcuffed behind his back. So with with regards to that, there, there's no indication of, of any police misconduct it, it looks like an absolutely good arrest so my, my and, and I, don't, I think i'll be found to be right on this i'm those injuries 99 percent took place prior to the actual arrest I, i've been at a scene before where somebody's been shot we didn't realize he was hit we're handcuffed him we're searching him and then all of a sudden we find blood as we're as we're patting him right. down we find blood and we have an old, old crap moment, and we back off, uncuff them, and get some ambulance there, right? So, and, and that could have been the case in this instance too. Um, I, I really believe I, I, it came out early, and and in civilian investigations, police shouldn't actually release this information. But it did come out that the wounds were self-inflicted um, initially. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, initially, yeah. So, if it was self-inflicted, he was. My thinking is he was already bleeding pretty good probably when the police took him into custody 
They were patting him down. They were searching him, and they realized, oh, crap, he's injured. Get the ambulance here. Do first aid on him. Or he passed out. Maybe he had a stab wound to his leg or some hit an artery or something along those lines. Because if you handcuff yourself, there's no way he could have injured. When I say no way, nothing's impossible. But to to think that he might have injured himself in the back of that cruiser. Once he was in custody. is. Uh, when, and when you're handcuffed behind yeah, your yeah. back, yeah, you know what? You're handcuffed behind your back. Even if you can access a weapon that's in your in your crotch or something like that, try stabbing yourself to death with that. It, it ain't easy to kill yourself. It's yeah. not easy. And so, so I, I really believe, and and I think it will uh, come to um, come to realize that he was already injured when the police were actually searching him. There, he okay. was just uh, had some life left in him. Yeah, we'll have to. Yeah, exactly. And those details, as you say, we will find out. Um, last one here, and I and I know um, the investigation is continuing. And as you know, like I say, they found the car on, on Friday. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I'm sure there's all kinds of police in northern Saskatchewan. What are they trying to do at this point? I mean, once you've got uh, yeah. both of the suspects no longer, you know, to be dealt with, what what's the police investigation focused on now? Okay, so there's no court case coming down the road with regards to the trying of these two these two individuals. But what there will be, I'm certain there will be, or very sure, you know, pretty sure there will be some type of an an inquiry into perhaps looking at the parole board, perhaps looking at sentencing. You know, you've got a guy here with, I think they said, 59 convictions, and he's 30 years old. Well, that's that's an incredible number of convictions at 59 years of sure age to still walk in the street. I mean, because you think about it, every for every crime you get convicted of, there's probably 10 or 15 you did that you didn't get caught sure. for. You know? So when you when you think about it like that, this guy is just an absolute um, walking, you know, walking criminal, so to speak. And and and, and um, but but. We've got to look at the system. It's, I, I don't blame any particular parole officer. I don't blame any particular judge for sentencing him maybe too leniently in, in, in hindsight. It, it's the system. It's the Canadian system that we have. So, so there may be, you know, that, that their kind of hands are tied with yeah, regards right. to statutory release, with regards to this type of, uh, you know, we, we shake our heads that somebody could commit this many crimes and still be out, out and about. And and let, let's let's be honest. The, 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 you know, in February he was released, um, or uh, in February he was released. Um, somebody got it wrong. I mean, so so and, and or, or the system got it wrong. Uh, he shouldn't have been out. Also, he was unlawfully at large since May. And here's here's where the policing. You know, here's where some of the policing investigations may be going. If somebody's unlawfully at large at May, well, this is since May. This is September. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Like, what efforts were made to apprehend him? What, and, and I'm not blaming the officer whose desk that file is sitting on, because what priority was put on that? Was there any priority put on it? Or is it just a file that sits there, and you're only going to react to it if somebody calls and says, he's threatening me, he's doing this, he's doing that? You know, so I'm sure anybody who's unlawfully at large right now with regards to the uh, parole system, 
is probably being hunted down by their uh, parole officer this week because everybody's probably tying up loose ends because, you know, some, I I believe somebody's going to wear that. I I don't know who, but I I think whether it's the officer whose file that was sitting on the parole officer or, or his supervisor, I don't know who's, who, who, who's going to wear that, but I would imagine somebody does, unfortunately. Yeah, and you make a really good point. You know, just because somebody's on a Crime Stoppers most wanted list in Saskatchewan doesn't mean there's a task force out hunting these people down. I mean, that's very, very rare that there's actually there's not. these forces with time to do stuff like that, right? There's not. They're waiting for a call. Exactly. That's what doing. Exactly, yeah. Kevin, great stuff. I really, really appreciate you joining us this morning. Thank you so much. Right now, though, we're going to have a conversation, um, bringing you an update on the situation in Ukraine, which we haven't really talked about much lately, and um, there's been some major developments. Uh, apparently, the latest today, they have continued with their counteroffensive movement. Um, Ukrainian officials saying that they have liberated one village after another, saying in one region they've actually pushed the Russians right back to the border. Um, saying, uh, in some areas of the front, our defenders reached the state border with the Russian Federation. This from the regional governor of the northeast Kharkiv region. Um, Russian troops crossed the border in the region back on February 24th on day one of the invasion. And now, it looks like several months later, they've been pushed back again. Russia is acknowledging the military developments, but they say um, it's not because they're being pushed out. They say this is part of uh, regrouping. Okay, so uh, the truth I'm not sure, but we'll we'll check in now with um, Dr. Stephanie Carvin, who is an associate professor at Carleton University, former national security analyst and a contributing author to the Center for International Governance Innovation. Uh, Stephanie, thank you for joining us once again. Appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me on again. Okay, so bring us up to speed here. What's going on? It, it sounds like um, Ukrainian forces are having a tremendous amount of success and regaining large amounts of territory. Uh, yes, all that does seem to be true. I, I don't think anyone would look at what's happened in the past week in Ukraine and, and suggest that the Ukrainians have had a bad week. That said, I think we should also appreciate that this is coming at a, what is almost certainly a tremendous cost for them as well. Uh, there have been reports of, say, heavy casualties and, and um, you know, headed towards Kiev from, um, you know, the, the battle lines uh, in, in the Kharkiv uh, Oblast, as well as there uh, are reports in, in another part of the country where there's another uh, battle raging in Kyrgyzstan that uh, there's really, a, you know, there's there's a tough slog of a fight mm-hmm. going on there as well. So, yes, they're doing well, but um, the war is is far from over. Um, but, you know, you, I think the, the number I keep seeing is that, you know, 3,000 kilometers uh, square kilometers of territory yeah, yeah. have been have been liberated, right? I mean, that's more territory than the Russians have taken in four months. It's and they took it in like forty eight hours. It's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I've seen video of um, you know Ukrainian citizens reemerging from shelled buildings that they've been holed up in for months and coming out in in tears to to greet their liberators of the Ukrainian military. So I mean, there's video proof that obviously a lot of these towns have seen the Russians pushed out at least for now. Yeah, and I can't even imagine what it would be like being uh, one of these individuals who's lived kind of under this kind of nonstop terror for 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 months. Um, it, it, it must it must just must be a huge relief. So I think you know some of the questions being asked now, uh, you know, fairly recently, and, and no, not to you know cast any shade on the on Ukrainians, but like, are they too going to be able to hold this amount of territory? Yes. I think to a large extent, um, this 
what they did was more successful than I think what they even thought they were going to achieve. So now that also puts like new pressure on them as well, right? And so, um, you know, the, will the Russians look to, to come back? I mean, we can, we can get, um, we can talk about that in just a minute, but, um, that's going to be of concern. And then the second thing, something we saw last night that happened there was that, uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, obviously took out some of his frustration, or at least the, the Russian military did, on uh, civilian infrastructure in Ukraine, targeting the electrical grid. Um, you know, if he does that and continues, say, to target the sanitation and, and things like that, I mean, the life, you know, these people are not out of the woods yet. So, you know, certainly some relief would have come. I can't even imagine the emotion of, of just being there, but we're definitely, they're definitely not out of the woods. What about Russia's take on this? No, 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 everything's fine. This is just part of our regrouping and realigning and things like that. I mean, obviously, they're going to try and put a brave face on it. Could there be any truth to that, though? I mean, or is this a full-on retreat? Yeah, I think they use the term route. It's a route, right? Yeah. Um, it's basically, uh, which is, a, you know, the military term, I guess, for an uncontrolled ret- uh, retreat. Like, there's... there's very little grace that they can put on this. I think, you know, they've tried to just say, oh, yeah, this is orderly. Oh, yeah, this is fine. Uh, it's not. Um, it, it really isn't. I mean, just the number of vehicles alone, and if you've been watching this on social media or if anyone has, they, they will have seen um, the images of just, you know, what has to be hundreds of vehicles left behind oh, yeah. that the Ukrainians can now use, right? I mean, I think, you know, one of the jokes they say is that one of the larger, largest donators of equipment to the Ukrainian army is actually the Russian forces. So, um, so there's that aspect of it. Um, this does seem to have been like, you know, we have seen long lineups at the border, uh, of Ukrainians, or sorry, of, of, I guess, you know, individuals trying to leave Ukraine, get going into the Russian border. Uh, a lot of those individuals appeared to be in civilian vehicles, but we don't know if they were actually Russian soldiers, right? right? Yeah. Uh, disguising themselves as civilians to, to head back. That's, that's a possibility as well. So, so yeah, um, we don't, you know, I, I think that there is, you know, uh, a lot of the discussion surrounding the Russian forces right now is, um, you know, they do still have a lot of equipment. They do still have weapons. Now, um, there were reports last week by the New York Times, which suggested that uh, Russian forces are, in fact, turning to countries like North Korea in order to find, uh, uh, you know, armaments because uh, they, they may be running out, but also because of all the restrictions now, all the sanctions that have been placed on them, they may not have the chemicals in which to actually that you need to actually make these weapons as well right so i think sure. that's that's part of the problem but really the, the biggest problem they're facing is, is manpower they just simply don't have an army and even if they did something like general conscription right now like where all you know all the young men are called up to fight i mean they still have to train those troops they have to equip them um you know you can't just take a, a modern day 22 year old accountant and have them become a soldier and sit in like like five six weeks in modern warfare uh and expect you know tremendous victories it, it's kind of like making them be cannon fodder so i i don't know what the russians can really do at this point uh, in terms of manpower they i think they're going to try and hold on to what they have with your life but i mean there's already reports and i should say very 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 much unconfirmed reports that there may be some negotiations going on now in the south of the country in kirsten where some of the you know where they may actually uh, be trying to negotiate some kind of surrender i mean this is really shockingly um you know it's hard to keep up with events i'll teach a class i'll come back and be like oh look 20 more cities liberated (laughs) um so uh, it really is a dynamic situation 
It is, no doubt about it. And I think looming over all of it, at least from some of the people that I've spoken with, Stephanie, is you've got winter approaching, or at least fall, uh, yeah. which is drastically going to change everything. And, it, and Russia, uh, of course, with the natural gas and the energy supply, is in a really powerful position as the weather changes. So, I mean, like you say, it moves a lot. There's a lot of different factors, and that could be a big one in the near future. I think so, and I think this is what Putin is banking on, yeah. right? I think this is his last play to basically have Europe freeze to death for a year and then um, hopefully that they'll come back with, you know, Europeans will come back with their tail between their legs and that they will in fact try to uh, you know, say, hey, we really need this Russian gas. So the problem, there's one problem with this card is that once it's played, it's played. Like, you can't play this card again. Um, And so, you know, it's in place now and what we're seeing is, yeah, Europe is in a a bit of a a mess. I mean, going into this segment, I was listening to the news and they were talking about, you know, in Italy, they're saying, um, stop the water boiling once you put the pasta in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, like that's what people are talking about. Um, but the, so, so this is a very, uh, you know, real thing. But, you know, what we're seeing now is European countries adjust. They're turning to new markets. They're looking to green energy sources. It looks like Germany is not going to go off nuclear power as fast as it once thought it would. Yep, exactly. So I think there's a number of, you know, so the fact is, it's like, you know, Putin has played this card, but so far, and not would we'll see what happens in a couple months but uh europe doesn't seem to be wanting to give in because of that right they're saying okay we'll just have a cold winter and, and get through but you know we'll we'll see where russia you know, let's see where both of us are six months from now and uh we'll be drawing some some interesting conclusions yeah and as you say it all happens so quickly um Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. I really, really appreciate your time. Oh, I could talk about this for hours. It's just so <laughs> fascinating. So thanks for having me on. We'll chat again um, soon. And uh, yeah, thanks. Cheers. You bet. Uh, Dr. Stephanie Carvin, who is an associate prof at Carleton and a former national security analyst and a contributing author to the Center for International Governance Innovation. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.